You're listening to Wide Margins. This is episode 63 on the Dark Ages. Today we're talking about the papacy. In 2007, the Vatican issued a document ratified by Pope Benedict, and this document claimed that only the Catholic Church is, as he said, the one true Church of Christ. According to the document, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant churches were said to be suffering a wound because they didn't recognize the primacy of the Pope. Now, here, here's my question. Do the Catholics have any historical basis for this claim of the primacy of the Pope? And how early did Catholicism arise? Is it possible for us to identify, as they call it, the one true Church of Christ? And if so, what standard do we use to make that identification? Are there any indications of Catholicism in the Bible? And how should we view the Catholic Church today with its age-old heritage and a papacy that claims to originate with Peter himself? I hope to answer those questions in this episode. It should be very instructive. A lot of people are curious about the Pope. He's certainly a very influential leader. Uh, for many people, especially those outside the, ch- the church, outside of Christianity, Uh, The Pope is the leader of the church. So how did he come to that position? How did he come into so much power? Well, there's a history back about it that goes back into the Dark Ages. But before we talk about what developed in the Dark Ages, I think we need to go back to the Bible, to the apostolic days, and look at the structure of the church then. How was the church organized in the beginning? And when you look at the passages that talk about church organization in the New Testament, you see a very simple, primitive structure. The New Testament church was governed by a plurality of elders. Uh, They were also called bishops or overseers or pastors or shepherds. All of those terms referred to the same office. And this group of elders ruled local, autonomous that is, self-ruling congregations. A couple of examples. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, uh, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they're going back through the towns of Lystra and Derby, other places around there, establishing churches. Uh, and it says that they appointed elders, in the plural, for every church, in the singular. So it's very important that you pay attention to the number of the nouns. Uh, There were elders in the plural per church in the singular. And you see the same kind of arrangement described in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 where Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to appoint elders, plural, to every city, singular. Now I know city doesn't necessarily equate with church, but it seems to reflect the same kind of arrangement that we noted in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So, that's what you have. When you see it, you see this group of men over one congregation, and you don't see a hierarchy. You don't see a bishop, for example, over a number of churches, 
or a pope over a number of bishops who are over a number of churches. You just see that simple structure, local churches governed by a plurality of elders. In time, a system evolved wherein single bishops would rule over congregations. And so you still had autonomous congregations, but instead of being ruled by a group of elders, it came to one powerful bishop. And then maybe he was over a board of elders they would call presbyters, and under them, the deacons. But this is not the arrangement that you see in the New Testament. It was this uh, power structure, this more centralized form of leadership was an invention from the mind of man. As the church grew, it, it, it began to mimic the structure of the government in Rome, the Roman Empire. Provincial towns of the empire became the Episcopal towns of the church, and above the provinces in the empire were larger sections of the empire called metropolises, and the bishops in the metropolises are the larger cities soon came to supervise the bishops in the provinces of that area. And then finally, the empire was divided into major regions, and so within those regions, there formed a leader of the church as well. And eventually, churches located in just four or five different cities ruled the rest of the churches, and their bishops ruled the rest of the rest of Christianity. And those main cities were Rome, obviously, Constantinople, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch, and then later, just because of its spiritual significance, the city of Jerusalem. Those became regarded as the most important cities to the church, and the churches located within them were regarded as the most important churches, and their bishops were regarded as the most important bishops. Now, in Rome, you had an emperor who was over the whole government. So, naturally, among the church, a bishop eventually claimed to rule the whole church. And, obviously, in the beginning, the bishop who made this claim was the bishop of Rome. He took the title of Papa, which later evolved into Pope. That's where the name Pope comes from. Rome was the capital city of the empire, home of the largest and wealthiest church with a reputation both of orthodoxy and charity, and the church in Rome had been resilient despite numerous persecutions and despite invasions. The church in Rome grew in numbers, it grew in significance, so by the middle of the third century, the membership of the church at Rome probably numbered around 30,000 people very large church, even by today's standards. But in the year 330, something changed. Something shifted in the empire, which had its effect upon the church. What happened was the emperor Constantine moved his imperial residence to Constantinople in the east. And that shifted the political center of the Roman Empire east. And soon, you guessed it, the bishop in Constantinople claimed authority over the bishop in Rome. So everything you see so far is just trying to reflect the state of the Roman Empire. But with that shift in 330 from west to east, 
Rome began to challenge and assert its dominance. In the beginning, it simply argued that we're the head church and I'm the head bishop because I'm in the capital of the empire. With the shift over to Constantinople, that claim couldn't be made anymore. So when that occurred, the Pope in Rome began to argue primacy based on something called apostolic succession. Now, apostolic succession goes back to the second and third centuries in, uh, in the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostics were this group of uh, Greek thinkers who had this idea of dualism between matter and spirit, and we're not going to get too far into the weeds on that. But the response to Gnosticism was the bishops over the churches established by apostles are the ones who have the true doctrine. They are the quote-unquote depositories of apostolic tradition, and so they have the true teaching. You can trust them. You can't trust these Gnostic leaders that are coming out of nowhere or coming from this pocket or this place in an obscure region of the Roman Empire. Trust the bishops who are ruling churches established by apostles. In other words, bishops of churches like Rome and Antioch. And the argument was there to face that Gnostic heresy, and it succeeded. Well, it died out because there was no need for it, but in the 4th century it was revived to respond to these claims in the East that the bishop of Constantinople was more powerful, had more authority than the bishop in Rome. And the bishop in Rome claimed that since Peter established the church in Rome, and was bishop over the church at Rome. And since the Lord had promised to build his church upon Peter, then the bishop at Rome is the successor of Peter and the universal bishop, the ruler of the whole church. That was the argument that was made. So it was a shift in arguing, hey, we're the lead church, I'm the lead bishop because we're in the capital of the empire. In 330, the argument shifted Two, I'm the head bishop because I'm the successor to Peter. Which leads us to a very important question. Probably the question on your mind. Was Peter the first pope? Is there any ground to stand on? Now, a very powerful early pope named Pope Leo I, 400 to 461, he made his case for primacy based on three scriptures. And you can probably guess the first one, the most important one, Matthew 16, verse 18. This is where Peter has made the good confession to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The argument there is, the word Peter means rock. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. And so Jesus said he was building the church on this leader named Peter. And therefore, all those who came to take his place in Rome were the leading bishops of the church. Now, first of all, it's not clear that Jesus said that he would build his church on the man Peter. Peter... Uh, is from the Greek Petros. The word rock is translated from a similar word, but a different word, Petra. 
and there are slightly different meanings to these two words. Petros has to do with a stone, uh, even a pebble, but Petra, the word Jesus used to describe the foundation on which he would build his church, Petra has to do with a bedrock, like a foundation stone. They're not exactly the same word. And it's more likely that Jesus was saying on the confession, the bedrock confession that you made, that you, Peter, the stone have, has made, I will build my church. That also seems to have followed later. Uh, you don't see people preaching Peter. You see them preaching Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the church was built on that confession, not on Peter. But because Jesus said this, and because in the next verse he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven and told him that whatever he loosed in heaven, would, uh, loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven, whatever he bound on earth would be bound in heaven, the pope argued that, that Peter was the first pope and all those who followed in Rome were his successors. Two other passages not as important, but I'll reference them just because Pope Leo I argued from them. Uh, Luke 22, 31 through 32. This is where Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, uh, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, that doesn't, to my mind, argue the case for Peter being the head bishop of the church in Rome. Uh, it doesn't argue that his successors should be the head bishops after him. It doesn't argue that the church would be built on Peter. It just says that Simon was going to be tested, that Jesus was going to pray that his faith wouldn't fail, and after he repented, he would be one who strengthens brothers. Not the only one, but one among many who would strengthen his brothers, that Peter could be redeemed, that he would survive this very hard test. And you know the test to which he is referring. It's the denial of Christ at the trials of Christ. The last passage to which Pope Leo referred was John 21, 15 through 17, where Jesus is confronting Peter's threefold denial on the beach after his resurrection. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked Peter on that occasion, do you love me? And he would use the word agapao, do you love me with this uh, committed, uh, unconditional love? And Peter couldn't bring himself to use the word agapao. He would say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you from the word phileo, which means like an affectionate love. It's almost like Jesus would say, do you love me? And Peter would say, yes, Lord, you know that I am your friend. Or, yes, Lord, you know that I'm loyal to you. But he couldn't just repeat the words that Jesus was saying. But every time Peter affirmed that he was uh, affectionate, warm, uh, loyal to Jesus, Jesus would tell him, feed my lambs. Or he would say, feed my sheep or tend my sheep. And uh, that was another argument that Pope Leo made. So, was he right? Was Peter the first pope? Well, first of all, I'd respond to that saying it's not clear from Scripture that Peter was ever even in Rome. Uh, we don't think that any apostle established the church in Rome. And 
One indication of that comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul clearly says that he uh, had never visited Rome, that he hoped to get there one day, and we know that he eventually got there in chains, but the church at Rome had been firmly established long before Paul had made it there. Of course, that doesn't say anything about Peter, but in verse 11 of Romans chapter 1, Paul says something very interesting. He says that he hopes to visit them so that he might impart some spiritual gift to them. That indicates that they did not have spiritual gifts. And in the early days, an apostle, when he could, would visit a new church and lay his hands on on the new Christians to impart spiritual gifts or miraculous signs to them so that they could confirm the message of Christ when they're spreading the gospel in new areas. Well, Peter had done that with John in Samaria, according to Acts chapter 8. If he had come to Rome, and if he had established the church at Rome, why would Paul need to go visit them to impart spiritual gifts? It, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't appear that Peter had been there yet either. That's not to say that he didn't come later. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes his first epistle, and he says he's writing from Babylon. Now, Babylon by that day was a very insignificant town. It, it wasn't the capital of anything. It wasn't even a very large city. Of course, in ancient times, it was a, a great empire. And by New Testament days, Babylon had become synonymous with um, corruption, evil. It was an, a symbol for uh, an evil city and symbolic of Rome. I, I believe that you know Babylon symbolizes the city of Rome in the book of Revelation. So probably Peter is in Rome when he writes his first epistle. Again, he uses a symbol, so we can't know for sure, but the most likely candidate for the symbol of Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13 is Rome. But that doesn't say that he established the church there or that he even got there you know, anytime soon after the establishment of the church at Rome. It doesn't even say that he was leading as a bishop of the church at Rome. It just says he was writing from Babylon, which may indicate Rome. The idea that uh, Peter died in Rome is a long-standing tradition. Tradition says that he was uh, crucified by Nero upside down. It's a pretty good tradition. It's not an inspired tradition, but it's as good as any other historical account that we have. And so he probably did eventually make it to Rome, as did Paul. But there's no evidence that he established the church there, not even that he led the church as a bishop. So you're on shaky ground if you're saying that I should be the universal pope because I'm in the seat of Peter who established the church at Rome. Number one, because we don't know that Peter established the church at Rome. Number two, we don't even know that he was a bishop at Rome. Number three, the Bible doesn't endorse a hierarchical structure of church organization with one man at the top. Only Christ is the head of the church, and churches are to be led by a group of elders over autonomous congregations. Next, while Peter was a leader in the church, he was an apostle, when he describes himself in terms of 
uh, an elder, he calls himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, which denies the whole argument for a chief bishop of any kind. And then finally, when Jesus established the kind of leadership he wanted over churches, it was very clear that he wanted to establish a system of authority unlike the world's, one that led through service, example, and love. You can look at Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Those are some things to um, to consider, and I don't think that Leo I had any scriptural standing for his argument that he was the Pope, that he should be universal bishop over the church. Nevertheless, he made some strides in that, and it was due to Leo I's influence, I think. Um, others might argue someone else that came later, but I think it was due to his influence that Rome gained primacy over all the other churches of the empire and became the seat of the Pope. Now, here's some historical information about Leo I and his struggle to become universal bishop. In 445, the Emperor Valentinian III was desperate for the support of any authority that might help hold the empire in the West together. From the last episode, you might remember that barbarian invasions began early in the 5th century. In 410, the Visigoths sacked Rome. In 430, we talked about how uh, the Vandals besieged Hippo, the city of Augustine, and Augustine died in that. Uh, the Vandals would later come, a couple decades later, to Rome. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the barbarian invasions were threatening the fabric of Rome. And Valentinian III was desperate. So he issued an edict establishing the authority of Leo in Rome. He needed the support of the strongest institution in the world at that time, which was the church. And so to get the support of Leo, he issued this edict that established his authority. Now, they had a council, one of the ecumenical councils, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which was in the east, a suburb of Constantinople. And Pope Leo I wasn't there, but the spirit of Leo was dominant. It was said throughout the council, Peter has spoken through Leo. So this argument of primacy from Peter was very much in place at that council. But the opinion was was divided because at the same council, the bishop of Constantinople, who was present, was given equal authority to Leo in Rome. So Constantinople became for the east what Rome was for the west. And it seemed that Christianity at that time had two heads, the pope in Rome and the patriarch, as he was called, in Constantinople in the east. And you see this divide widening between the church in the west and the east throughout the Dark Ages. And the next year, that'd be 452, Attila the Hun led his cavalry out of Central Asia to invade the western half of the Roman Empire. And before he got to the city of Rome, he was met by a peace delegation led by, you guessed it, Bishop Leo. The contest between the two seemed unequal. Attila the Hun was this great military leader, and uh, Leo was just some priest from the church in Rome. But nobody knew it, but Attila had been 
greatly weakened by mutiny and by pestilence. He had been on the warpath for a long time, and he was on his last leg. So he took advantage of this delegation led by Leo, and the Pope made this plea that the capital should be spared, and uh, asked Attila the Hun to withdraw from Italy, which he agreed to do. Now, Attila the Hun was pretending that he was doing this, uh, being merciful to the Pope, but in reality, he needed to go regroup. He was about done. And so when he withdrew, Leo got the credit and became something of a hero in Rome, which helped his argument that he should lead the whole church. A few years later, in 455, the Vandals, that group of barbarians that sacked and besieged Hippo, they made their way to Rome. They killed and mutilated the body of Emperor Maximus, entered the city with no resistance. Leo met the Vandal king, Genseric, at the city gate. And um, when he came, of course, he was leading priests instead of soldiers. And Leo and the king were about the same age. Uh, they were about 65 years of age. Leo begged for mercy as he had done with Attila the Hun. And Genseric thought about this and considered it for a moment and then said, 14 days looting. And at that, his soldiers looted the city of Rome, took its treasures, took prisoners, took the wealth of Rome, did that for two weeks, and then left as they promised. Rome had been sacked, it had been plundered, prisoners had been taken, but it wasn't burned down, massacre had been avoided, and only a few of the churches had been plundered. Rome was terrified, but they were thankful to Leo for what he had done for them. He had saved Rome a second time, and that earned him the title Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of religion throughout the empire. That's when the papacy grew to its strength, and it would continue to grow throughout the Dark Ages. Tune in next time for Wide Margins.